17 through 21, where the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. So here we are in our fourth week of a Reformation series, and it's four weeks because you'll remember uh, there was a Protestant Reformation, but more accurately, there were Protestant Reformations. There were four of them going on all at once, and we've covered three of them, the Lutheran Reformation, the Anglican Reformation, and last week we talked about the Reformed Reformation, but there's one final one, the Radical Reformation. Today we get to the most extreme reforms. Because that's what radical means, right? It means extreme. But it also means going back to the roots. Radical means going back to the roots. And there were some Christians in the 1500s who said, we need to get back behind the church tradition. We need to cut through the church traditions and become an Acts church again. Become a church that's like the original church. They wanted to go back to a pure Christianity with only the Bible and their personal conscience. And this was addressing some problems that existed in the year 1517 when Martin Luther first nailed up those 95 theses. There were problems in the church. And I I, I talk about the problems uh, with a question. Who is supposed to do the work of discipleship in the church? Is it the pastor? Is it a priest? Or everyone? Well, in 1517, there was a clear answer. It was not everyone who was supposed to do the disciple-making. At that time in Western Europe, in the Western Church, only super-Christians were supposed to do this. And the super-Christians were the ones who were ordained. You could be a man or a woman and go into an ordained ministry, join a monastic order. So you're a monk or you're a nun and you do super-spiritual things like you pray and you read the Bible. Not everybody was reading the Bible back then. And you minister in different ways, and you preach and you teach. Or, if you were a man at least, you could become a priest and move up the hierarchy. So you start out as a deacon, then you become a priest, then a bishop if you were lucky, and then an archbishop, and then the pope at the very top. Those were the options. Those were the people who were supposed to make disciples. Well, not everyone was comfortable with this, and people were trying to figure out the problem. And some reformers felt... The source of the problem was baptism, was the way people had conceived baptism. There were low expectations of Christians, average Christians, because everyone was baptized. Being a Christian wasn't voluntary at that time. Babies were baptized, meaning they were Christians whether they wanted to be or not. Moreover, baptism didn't seem connected to discipleship, Because baptism, 
wasn't just entrance into church membership, but also civic membership. When you got baptized, you were baptized as a Christian and also a member of that city or that territory. And weird things happen when you do that. When you connect church and state that closely, weird things happen. I saw this firsthand. I was in Denmark a few years ago visiting my uncle. And he took me to this little uh, church, a chapel, that was, I think, from the 1400s. I mean, it was a medieval chapel. And we went in, and there are these gorgeous frescoes everywhere and pictures of heaven and hell and all sorts of things. And I was just stunned. And then I noticed that there were uh, a row of the boredest-looking teenagers I have ever seen in my life sitting on the front row, uh, that, that pew, and there was a woman who was way, you know, wagging her finger at them and speaking in Danish, and so I asked Uncle Johnny, I said, what, what's going on here? And he says, oh, they're being catechized. They're being taught the, the Christian faith. I said, oh, like what? He's like, ah, oh, well, they're just talking about being a good Danish citizen, you know, being a good person and tolerant and things like that. That, that's it? Yeah. And they were just also wanted to be anywhere else. Well, that's not much of a discipleship, is it? Baptism in Denmark there, as I saw, as it was in the 1500s, baptism didn't mean you were a committed Christian on mission with Jesus. It simply meant you were kind of in the basic Christian realm. There was always a second decision to become a leader or serious about your faith. Could baptism again mean a commitment to discipleship as well as full participation in making disciples? Well, some people around the year 1517 believed it could be reclaimed. In fact, Christianity could be reclaimed as a kind of pure instance of the church. And this happened with a group I want to focus on called the Swiss Brethren. So there they were in Switzerland, in Zurich in particular, And the city of Zurich in Switzerland was implementing very strong reforms at that time. They were getting rid of a lot of the traditions, and it was being headed by a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. And Zwingli seemed like he was going to be cleaning up the church and going back to this pure conception of the church. Lots of people were on board. But Zwingli couldn't go all the way. He didn't want to break this kind of church-state fusion because he was afraid of what would happen if he did that. There wouldn't be any protection for the church. Zwingli decided that the church would stay with the city, with the city government. But other reformers in Zurich decided they were going to try to establish the pure church anyway. So they broke off, and guys named Conrad Grable and Felix Montz baptized a true believer there in Zurich, a guy named George Blaurock, and then he in turn baptized them. This believer's baptism severed the tie between church and state and thus underscored the importance of a personal choice to become a disciple. How do you think others responded to this? People were horrified at this. They were horrified first that these these Christians refused to take part in the city life. They weren't willing to fight for the city anymore. They weren't willing to kill And they weren't willing to participate in political life. They were deemed traitors. But it was worse than that. They were re-baptizing. I mean, all these people had been baptized before as children. Now they're being re-baptized. And so they called these people Anabaptists. That is, re-baptizers. That's what Anna means. Re-baptizers. And of course, the Anabaptists didn't think of it that way. 
but the name stuck. The response to these Anabaptists was severe. Felix Mons was executed by drowning in Lake Zurich in 1526. That was kind of the poetic way of killing them. If you want to be rebaptized, we'll rebaptize you too. We'll drown you. Blaurock tried to escape to the east, but was caught and burned at the stake by Roman Catholics. The others fled to any territory that would give them refuge. It was hard to be a radical. And even if you weren't persecuted, it was a pretty hard discipleship. If you were going to be part of this kind of church community, a radical community, people were going to hold you accountable. And so I was reading up on some of the personal standards that they had in there. Very high expectations for personal purity. Moreover, members were expected to separate from the world. You weren't supposed to do any military service. You weren't supposed to take up a political position. In fact, even if you took an oath, like in court, um, you could be disciplined in the church for that. Any kind of participation out there in the world was deemed grounds for discipline, even excommunication, which happened on some regular basis. Strict personal standards, but also strict communal standards. There were high expectations for participation in the community. Some of the groups uh, implemented very strong generosity programs, even communism. Uh, In one case, with the Hutterites. Anybody heard heard of the Hutterites? Same exact group. Um, Saying that they're not going to have any personal property, only shared property. This is hardcore discipleship. But there's one more thing that I want to attend to, and that is the radical reformers really emphasized the priesthood of all believers. Now, we throw that term around sometimes at Life Church, and, and what, it, what it means is, first, and all the reformers agreed on this, radical and otherwise, is that you don't need to have a priest to bring you to God. The only priest you need is Jesus Christ himself. And in fact, you yourself are a priest. You can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Every single one of you can. That's the first thing it meant. But the radicals took it even further. They claimed, with the idea of the universal priesthood, that ordinary lay Christians were permitted to do sacred tasks. That all of you who believe in Jesus are supposed to be preaching, teaching, doing things like leading worship. There were cases of just ordinary Christians baptizing other believers. For them, the priesthood of all believers meant a sweeping sense of equality among all Christians. Church life was supposed to be highly participative. So, for example, if you fast forward a few years, you have a group called the Quakers. And the Quakers, you may have heard of them. You had oats this morning. The Quakers, you know, would, would have a service like this, but they would all be silent. And they would just sit in silence until the Spirit moved on someone. And maybe it was a man or a woman, maybe it was an adult or a child, but somebody would stand up and say, well, the Spirit of the Lord is moving me to preach to you right now, or to share a verse, or to start a song, or things like that. Can we do that next week? (laughs) They were called the Quakers because uh, some observed that while they were sitting there in silence, they would be quaking that the Spirit was upon them. That's a pretty radical way of doing church. It's really trusting your people and trusting the Holy Spirit with your people. Well, the radicals have a legacy that they've left. Some of the legacy is kind of unsavory. They were persecuted mercilessly in many places. 
Moreover, they had some severe problems in their churches, great legalism and cults of personality, and there were some violent outbreaks. Nevertheless, the radicals found homes in different cities, and they established churches, and some of these groups live on today. The Mennonites, the Amish, who are a spinoff of the Mennonites, the Hutterites, and some brethren groups. But I think their greater influence is actually the influence they had on other denominations. Every single other uh, reformation we've talked about was influenced by radicals, and we have radicalized instances of Lutheranism and Anglicanism and Reformed Christianity. And guess where a lot of these sort of radicalized groups came? Here. So radicalized Christianity in the form of Methodism, in the form of Baptist life, in the form of Disciples of Christ and Church of Christ and Pentecostalism, all sorts of other groups, pietism, all these groups, they really settled in America. America is deeply influenced by the Radical Reformation, probably more than by any other Reformation. And here in the Midwest, we have a lot of churches that have a radical flavor to them. They believe in freedom of religion. They say that any kind of association is supposed to be purely voluntary. You can never force any kind of association. There's separation of church and state, a premium on personal liberty. And I think there's a radical legacy at Life Church, specifically in the area of the priesthood of all believers. As disciples of Jesus, we have a personal relationship with God. And moreover, we teach that every single one of us is commissioned to make other disciples in the world, as much as we might want to pawn it off on our elders or our pastors. God is calling us, every single one of us, to the task to make disciples. We are all priests before our God. And for that, we give thanks to God for the Radical Reformation. We good. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, that that is good news, uh, and and that's that's fun. And so it is it is my joy to to get a get to come up and and share share with with us share share with one another um, the the goodness of, of of what what the radical reformation looks like uh, very much so in in our lives today. Um, but, but before digging in into some of that, uh, just quick question. Who remembers being three years old? <laughs> so that's about what I expect. Let's be serious. Like three years old, especially for some of us, you know, that's, that's a little longer, longer ago than for others. Uh, that can be hard to think of like three years old. Maybe, maybe elementary school. Maybe there's, there's some seminal moments growing up that like I I remember this. This was this was formative in in who I was. Um, maybe maybe good things, maybe bad things. Um, but if right, maybe we're we're not the most most able to to remember being three years old or or being in elementary school. Um, but by and large, just by being here in church, we've we've come in contact with 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 children who are three years old or in elementary school. Maybe not. Maybe not through through teaching children's church, but but simply by by being here 
in church. And, and for others, you know, you're, you're experiencing that on, on the daily with, with your own kids or with, with your grandkids, um, maybe, maybe through work. Uh, and, and, and something that, that I've, I've picked up on, especially over these last couple years of helping out with children's church, um, is, is some really cool stuff with kids. Um, this, this really cool reality uh, that, for the most part, like, if kids see you doing something, and there's, even if there's, like, the smallest of, like, personal relationships there, if they see you doing something, they suddenly, like, come to you and, like, hey, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Can, can I be a part of this? I, like, I, w- I want to know what's going on. And this, this happens, like, one-on-one. You know, maybe, maybe at home, uh, we're, we're about to, to, to bake some, some brownies, and, and the child comes up, hey, what, what are you doing? Maybe they're just coming up because they're expecting, all right, I'm going to get to lick the spoon afterwards. And, but that's, that's a vital part of, of that whole process. Um, and, and when we're at our best, we invite them into that. We, we say, all right, hey, pull up a stool. They get up on the stool, and, and we either walk them through what we're doing or or we even invite them to, to have part in it. You know, hey, would you, would you hand me these ingredients? Would you mix this for me? Would you this and this and this? We invite them into that when we're at our best. This happens in, in large groups too. Maybe that we're not a part of, but, but maybe just amongst kids themselves where, you know, by and large, kids are, are, are drawn to one another, drawn to, to be with one another, to be in on what's going on whether a game or activity or, or, or just the adventure of, of doing life together. I think we, we see in kids um, a, a beautiful picture of, of what, what the, the radical reformation um, invites us into. We see kids who desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves and not just be a part of it, to play a vital and valuable role in that something. And, and you know, kids aren't the only ones with those desires and hopes. Like, we as people, I believe we as people have those very same desires to be part of something bigger than ourselves to, to play a valuable role, to know that, that we have meaning in what we do. And we get to be part of that together. But we know that, that we don't freely give of ourselves to anyone or everyone, to anything and everything. You know, we've, we've put up walls. We have, we have defenses. We, we have securities that, that we... We don't fully put ourselves out there because we've, we've been hurt. We've been burned. There have been, been relationships that we've gone to and, and, and we've, we've desired to be part of that. And somewhere over time, we've, we've either been rejected, um, whether in, uh, in, in, you know, in friendships, in, uh, in relationships, in uh, in, in even being part of a, a team, there's, there's been rejection. Or we've, we've been brought into, into some of those, those relationships 
and, and it didn't meet our expectations or what was communicated to us of like, oh, you're going to be able to do this. That was anything but what happened. And so we, we begin to put up these walls of, all right, how, how much can I give of myself to someone else? Or, or how much can I give of myself to this, this community or, or, or this cause or um, this, this thing to do? And the very real reality is that, that we, we do the same with church, um, with the church lived out. And, and, and the goodness of, of, of what we read in, in 2 Corinthians is that Paul is inviting us beyond that. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, is inviting us to get beyond those walls and to participate and be part of something bigger than ourselves in which we have the utmost value of being part of. And the thing that Paul invites us into is a reconciliation. Reconciliation is one of those words um, that I think if you've grown up in the church or if you've found yourself in the church or, or have read, read through the Bible a few times or maybe you've just heard it outside um, in, in everyday life here or there, I think it's one of those words that we don't necessarily know what it means. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, reconciliation. That sounds really good. It's one of those ones that ends in, in Asian. Cool. <laughs> um, and we just go from there. But I tell you what. I, I love to, to understand what a word means, especially if, if it gets to be something that we say is, is as important as, as it is to our lives. And, and I, posed, I posed the same question of, of what is reconciliation uh, to, um, to, to, to high school students. So I work with high school students. Um, and and uh, about a month ago, uh, we're, we're getting together, and, and just me and two other guys, we're talking about, hey, why do you do what you do? You know, what, what are your reasons for uh, acting the way you act, for being part of the groups or organizations that you're part of, for having the friends that you have? Um, we're digging deeper and deeper with this why, and, and landed on saying, like, hey, ultimately, when it comes down to it, as you're thinking about your friends, like, you're being invited into reconciliation. And this, these are the faces that, that then look at me when, when I say the word reconciliation. They're like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no idea. So, so take, take, take the step back, like, okay, so reconciliation, don't know the word, cool. What about, what about restoration? What about restoration? Do you know what restoration means? And without missing a beat, uh, Johnny, a sophomore who has a hard time getting to school, uh, he goes to me, oh, restoration means to bring something used back to its full potential. And I'm like, well, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Restoration means to bring something used back to its full potential. So we took that next step, and I'm like, so reconciliation is restoration within relationships. 
Reconciliation is bringing a relationship that is used, worn, or broken back to its full potential. I had to text Johnny this week to, to get exactly what he said to me. And again, it's like two seconds, boom, here you go. I'm like, all right. He was getting it. But, but Paul doesn't just stop with saying, hey, um, you're invited to, to reconciliation. You're invited to, to restored relationships. You're invited to relationships that are now returning to their full potential. Um, now, he invites us into a ministry of reconciliation. And if we're invited into a ministry of reconciliation, we are, in fact, ministers of that reconciliation. Now, we've probably got some preconceived ideas of what it means to be a minister. Um, we might think of, of a pastor, we might think of a priest, we might think of someone who, who gets to, to be in front of the church sharing, preaching, uh, gets to be the minister. Um, but really, in, in effect, what a minister is, is a servant. So a minister is a servant. We are a servant of reconciliation. And a servant is... One who is in the service of another. So specifically, we are servants of God. We are in the service of God. Acting on his behalf. As his representatives. Now, the position of, of servant, if we, if we think of a minister as a servant, will it's pretty easy to, to not think of a servant as, as the super-Christian, as Nathan said. You know, it's pretty easy to think of a servant as, as one who is the lowest, one who has no credentials, one who is, is not even acting on their own or for their own interests, or one who can't. But we are called into being ministers of reconciliation, servants of God who invite others into restored relationship with him. Um, which means then that, that it's not reserved for the extra holy. It's not reserved for the well-educated. It's not reserved for the pastors. It's not reserved for the public speakers. It's not reserved for... The 20-somethings who are single and have all the free time in the world, it's not reserved for, for the 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who have families and, and have careers and, and have some wisdom and knowledge. No. It's not reserved for the confident, for the put-together, for the well-off. It's not even reserved for the long-time Christians. No, we all as those who are made new in Christ, we all are ministers of reconciliation. We all are servants who get to bring relationships that are used, worn, and broken back to their full potential. 
But why do we? Why do we get to do that? How do we get to do that? I don't know. Uh, you, might, you might even ask and say, like, have you seen the relationships that I'm in? Have you seen the relationships that I've been in? Have you seen how people have treated me in relationships? Have you seen how I have treated others in relationships? Like, if you look at my relationship history, I, I am the furthest of qualified to be one who restores relationships. Well, good news. Uh, we're all disqualified then. <laughs> all of us have, have a history of, of relationships that aren't as good as we want them to be, aren't as good as they could be. Relationships that are worn and used and broken that are, are anything but operating at their full potential, either by our doing or someone else's. We're all disqualified then. But, but, at verse 17, all who are in Christ Jesus are new creations. On our own, on our own, we're disqualified. But in and through Jesus Christ, we are qualified. We are more than qualified to be those who bring about reconciliation. And here's the other great thing about it too is, it is not our own reconciliation that we bring. It is not our own restoring of relationships that we bring. It is reconciliation through Christ, by God, that we then get to be messengers of. See, Christ first reconciled us to him. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ reconciled each and every one of us to God. Said this relationship that was broken and worn and used, it is restored. It is brought back to full potential. It is brought back to something more than you could have ever wanted for yourself. And he then says that we are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We aren't entrusted with reconciling others. We aren't entrusted with saving others. We aren't entrusted with any of that. But we are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We are servants of God in that reconciliation. Right? That, that he is, is working in and through us. Right? We aren't the ones reconciling. God is reconciling. We are proclaiming and living out God's message that in and through Jesus we're restored to the fullest of relationships with God. 
and all of us new creations, sons and daughters of God, his ministers, his servants, we're not invited into but are actually already in this goodness in life that is much bigger than ourselves. In, in a role that is incredibly more valuable than we ever could have hoped for. We get to be about this reconciliation with the world. But what does, what does this look like? Like, what cool restored relationships being brought back to full potential? What, what does this look like? What, 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 do, what do I get to do? What do I get to live into? What, what message? Yeah, okay, I get, to, I get to bring this to others. How do I bring this to others? Well, first and foremost, we have to receive that message ourselves on, on, a, on a daily basis, on a, on a moment-by-moment basis. Receive the good news that, that through Christ, God has reconciled us to him, that we are a new creation, that we then have a, a, a purpose to go and help reconcile others, and we don't go alone, but we go together. We are belonging to a, a purpose and, and a, a community that is so much bigger than ourselves. Be thinking, okay, so I get to receive this reconciliation from, from God. I get, I get to, to pour into this, this restored relationship with God. Cool. Me and, me and Jesus are going to be good. This is good. Uh, but, it, but it never stays with just me and Jesus. It never stays there. Um, because, right, we're called as servants to carry this message of reconciliation. We get to, in turn, embody restored relationship in our everyday lives. Which means, then, that it's not, again, it's not reserved for those who can just come up on on a Sunday morning and and, and speak and share and preach. It's not not even reserved for for those who, who can just teach. If, if we look through, through all these different letters that, that Paul has written, you know, especially in, in Romans, he's, he's talking about this church that has, has, has many body parts that make up the entire body, that each have a function. That is for, for, for the encouragement and building up of the church. And that this church, while, while we, we have unique giftings and, and passions and, and, and roles, our ultimate larger role is as ministers of reconciliation on behalf of God. So within the church, you know, what, what are the ways that, that you get to give of yourself uniquely Maybe, maybe through actual acts of service, um, of, of cleaning, of, of, of sharing, sharing foods, of, of, of goods, of, of teaching children and high schoolers, of, of doing, doing tech, of, of music, of, of sharing the gospel, of prayer. Um, 
There, there is no shortage of ways in which you can build up and be part of the body, uniquely living out this reconciliation here within the church. And I mean, there, there's got to be some creativity, but that's good. But again, it didn't just stop with, with me and Jesus. And it doesn't just stop with, with me and the church. We, we get to, to be ministers of reconciliation to those who are, are far off, to those who, who don't know Jesus, who don't know the goodness of, of him restoring us into right relationship with the Father. And again, does that mean that, that we're all going to go out and, and we, are, we are street corner evangelists? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. But, but every day, the folks who we are with and who we go to, not, not all of them are Christians. Not, not all of them have received this message of reconciliation. And we get to embody restored relationships in the midst of relationship. And again, when I hear that, I'm like, gosh, this, that sounds good, cool, relationships. But right, when we go back and think about relationships, when we think about, about walls that, that we've put up, defenses that we've put up, we know that relationships aren't easy. We know relationships aren't straightforward. We know that we are, we are misunderstood, that we don't always communicate well, and that, that even we, we take things the wrong way too. And yet, if we are ministers of reconciliation, if we are servants of God who get to, who get to bring a message to others saying that, that broken relationships don't have to be the end of the story, that they get to be restored to their fullest of potentials in Christ, it's going to mean that we're in relationship with others. Not just those who are easy to be in relationship with. Not just our friends. Gosh. Not just those who, who, who we get along with and we can, we can sit and, and, and shoot the breeze for, for hours. We get to go and be in relationship with those family members who have wronged us with neighbors and coworkers who, who, who don't give us the time of day, with strangers who, for whatever reason, God has continued to put in our lives day after day after day. And we get to be faithful and long-suffering in those relationships, living out a life that, that says, I want this relationship to be full. 
to be restored to potential, to, 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 to be life-giving, in that when the opportunity comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to speak about and invite others into even just hearing the good news that Jesus Christ He's taken those broken, used, worn relationships and restoring them to their full potential, first and foremost, with God. And from there, with one another, with creation, with ourselves. As this is, this is the ministry that we're invited into, each and every one of us, regardless of where we're coming from, our backgrounds, histories, we, as new creations in Christ, are invited into this ministry of reconciliation. And going back to, to one of, one of the, the, the first, first sermons in this series of, of talking about Reformation, that we are continuing, continuing to be reformed now. That we are, we are, we are, we are still becoming who God has, has made us to be. It means we're not going to get this perfect. We're not going to do it, do it, do it perfectly or, or, or maybe even well the first, the second, the third, the 50th, the 100th time we enter into a relationship saying, gosh, reconcilia- reconciliation come. But we get to go together. And we get to go as those who aren't in control and aren't dependent upon upon someone receiving that message or not. But we get to go as those who are reconciled to the Father, um, inviting others into this good news. Um, Melissa's going to come up and, and share, share this good news um, of reconciliation. I I love hearing that message that we are called to be reconcilers. And this is why. Because it's very easy to see around us how relationships, the world is is broken, it's worn. There's we just feel it every day. And so in the beginning it wasn't that way. God created everything perfectly. He created us to be in relationship with us and others. But then we sinned, we broke that relationship. But God, in his goodness, in his sovereignty, he sent his son Jesus to come, to live the perfect life, to die for us, that we can, that our sin, that brokenness can be repaired. And then he was raised again from the dead so that we could live in relationship with him. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that we are able to continue to communicate and be restored to him. And so if you're hearing that for the first time, we're going to have the prayer team come, come and just... Be encouraged, be invited that you can be made new. You can be restored to God. Or if it's just you're in a hard place or you need prayer for something else, the team is going to be up here to pray with you. Okay, so I will pray, and if you would like prayer, you may come. Otherwise, you are free to go. Jesus, we thank you that you have come, that you have given us new life. You have reconciled us to yourself so that we can know what it is to be alive and whole and complete. 
to be restored to you, to live life with you as you intended. So God, I pray that in us, you would help us to understand that we have that place as your servants to reconcile others, but God, that we would also every day that you would speak to us that grace that you have given us, that we are reconciled to you, we belong to you, and we go out as your ministers of reconciliation. So I thank you for all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.